Hello. Hi. We're back from our 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 successful pilot launch. Hooray! We got eight listens. Yeah, with no promo. Yeah, we're hoping to make it to ten this time. Hi, Lolo. How are you? I'm I'm fine. Let's say I'm fine <laughs> for brevity. Yeah. Um. I mean. Yeah, I'm still doing fine. You posted an article. I read it. It was really good. Thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah, I'm proud of that, actually. That came out really, that came out really naturally. For Like, I wrote that really quickly. I don't, what am I talking? <laughs> Plug it in, polysmina.com. <laughs> Go check it <laughs> out. Yeah. yeah. No, it's, um, it's been good. How are you? I've seen you're back in Sicily now. Yeah, I've been chilling in Sicily for a while now. I'm going back to London on 21st of March, so in two weeks, but I've been here since the 16th of February. It's, it's great to be you know recentered. i feel very zen um you know walks by the beach stuff like that so sun oh that sounds lot. so good yeah, yeah, yeah so it's good it's good i'm recentered and um yeah ready to get back into the groove of things i guess also it's like i literally have one month left until i finish uni mm-hmm. like it's a bit okay yeah yeah it's not that yeah. much you have like wade through one more month and then you're done you, you can re- yeah. you can genuinely do it yeah, no, no, yeah. And I also need to figure out through next year. But you know what? We'll cross our bridge once we get there. We don't need to think about everything at once. I need to think about what I'm doing in September. So um, mm. we can like ignore that if you want for now. <laughs> to just... Oh, I've been stressing about it so much that it's kind of like a perpetual stress at this point. It like it won't overstress me because I'm already to that level you know it's like a state of like a normal see yeah yeah, yeah. so my stress level or like my stress level are very high on this but they're also very constant mm-hmm. so additional additional talking about it won't actually make it worse okay fair, 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 fair. yeah you know what we'll figure something out screw it we'll have to so yeah exactly literally we'll have to so <laughs> yeah so <laughs> welcome everyone welcome back to our second episode yeah. of dear america please explain um this episode will be captained by my co-host lorenzo so take it away yeah yeah so um exactly well god i wanted to like find a new like smart way to piggy like to kind of introduce but i didn't find a transition for this for something we said so whatever this week we'll be talking about fraternities trigger warning i know we don't we don't we didn't do this in the first episode and i don't think hopefully it won't become a habitual thing but we will be talking about sexual assault rape and just violence um in this episode so if that's uncomfortable um yeah i guess tune out and listen for the next one thank you thank you yes so before we dive in for this episode i consulted the vox video why colleges tolerate fraternities um the um, article from Freemasons to Frat Houses, The Secret Societies We Know Very Little About by David Barnett on The Independent. Um, the Policy Brief from Policy Studies Organization, Phi Sigma Omega and Fraternal Societies. The excellent book, Trick Mirror, Reflections on Self-Delusions by Gio Tolentino. And finally, the book she mentions in her book, um, a little bit of a, you know, what's it called? Inter... Intertextual reference. (laughs) Exactly. Um, The Company He Keeps by Nicholas Surrett. Okay, thank you. Let's get on. Yeah, yeah. So keeping with the college theme, I guess. um, 
generally because fraternities have always kind of, um, you know, kind of captivated me in a way. It's like why I don't understand, like generally from a, like from not even from a European point of view, just as a per, like, I don't know. It's just weird to me, kind of no. maybe because I don't have. Yeah, you no, I, com- I completely agree. Yeah, all those like coming of age teen movies set in college with like yeah. frat parties and stuff like that. Like I, I never got around. Like zero appeal. I don't know. The I don't understand the appeal of Greek life, and I don't understand mm. why they um they're called with Greek like letters. I don't. I, I, mm-hmm. Why? Well, we'll get into that too. It's, yeah, it's not, I'm, I'm super excited not... about about me like about you lecturing me on this <laughs> yeah i mean i didn't really do a lot of research on that but i did come across a few reasons of why but it, it doesn't seem that groundbreaking to me but we'll we'll get into it so first of all i guess i'll I, i'll like you did with me last time i'll ask you why do you think fraternities are a thing in america what do you think is their deal how do you think they were kind of they came about and just paint a general picture of what you think why why fraternities (laughs) um i think my understanding of fraternities like um in my understanding they have like two main purposes and one is kind of like purely social in the sense that um being inserted in a very specific um hierarchy of people within a very specific structure i would feel facilitates bonding with other people and in completely new places and new environments such as university like i understand the appeal of that because maybe you're far from home from the for the first time and you really miss um you know your support structure and i understand that you know i'm sure Greek life and fraternities and sororities can definitely give that to you, a sense of belonging and a sense of family. So I think that's one of their purposes. But my understanding is also that they have a very important like networking value for later in life. So um, you want to try and, um, you know, get into the most exclusive frats or sororities because that might open a lot of doors for you in the future, I think. That's my main understanding of them. Okay. Okay. Well, fair. What you said makes sense, but there's a lot more to it. And it, it, it surprised me researching. So I'm hoping that like, I, <laughs> I can- No, this is great. Them. This is great. Like, I love being schooled. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love getting schooled by myself again. Also, the way I took notes is so, generally so, I hate to use this word, but like chaotic. I keep all my notes for uni, like in one same notebook. Just because it saves paper, but it's also very confusing because like these notes really mix in with like my econ notes and like all these things. So it's like maybe I should be more organized. But you know what? We'll go with it. We'll go with it. Anyways, I'll, I'll just say something if you start ranting on like macroeconomics or something. I'll just yeah. be like, no, no. It's fine. I don't understand that either. So it's like I can't get mixed up. First of all, to kind of understand fraternities, you have to really go to the root of America. You know. So oh yes, seven, take me there. Yeah, we're talking like full-on pilgrim scammer mode, like come on this land, let's steal everything, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm-hmm. So so before kind of America as a country, it's important to understand that the kind of concept of like societies and secret societies and their role, I guess, in again a society. I'm sorry, I'm just repeating <laughs> it. So do you know any secret societies that were popular maybe in the um, olden days? I want to say like the Masons, 
Yes, perfect. Wow. Oh, the, oh, the Freemasons, that's what they're called. Yeah, exactly, Freemasons. And the Freemasons are basically uh, a group of originally stonemasons, so like the, literally the people who like worked with stone and like mm-hmm. built buildings and stuff. It was basically kind of like their union in a way. And they kind of got together and talked about issues. And that gradually became a very exclusive um, kind of sort of sect of society once the stonemason profession kind of weaned out. But the Freemason kind of collective remained. So, and that's basically, like, I know there's lots of, like, folklore around societies and what they talk about and, like, it's kind of, like, culty things. But, like, the Freemasons, from what I researched, was literally just a, there is this aura of kind of mysteriousness and like suspicion towards it simply because it's a secret society. So you don't really know what's going on or they speak about in their you know meetings or whatever, but it doesn't necessarily have to be all bad. It can also not be all good. So you like secret society means that like you wouldn't know if X person is actually part of the Freemasons. Is that it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. You would know who was part of it because you saw them in meetings and there were like habitual meetings where you talked about maybe the current state of politics, of affairs, really anything that affected them as members of society. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that was kind of, uh, yeah. And it's important because fun fact, you know, Thomas Jefferson's was part of the Freemasons. Hi, this is Lorenz from the future. And um, Thomas Jefferson was in fact not a part of Freemasons on record, but George Washington was, and so were many, many members um, relevant to the creation of America. So, a little correction. So, a lot of key figures kind of in the creation of America, so the founding fathers, came from that sort of privileged part of society. Mm. Famous wars. Sorry? The famous sliding doors. Exactly. Out one way in the other. Yeah, like basically Freemasons were like, was like LinkedIn premium at the time, (laughs) essentially. That like society has not changed much. We have computers, but people are using the mechanisms. I swear to the same. I have nightmares on like Catherine sending me uh, messages on LinkedIn saying, I have to try premium. And I'm like, oh my God. It's like, how about I have to get a job? Give me a job. Like, damn, Catherine. Anyways. How am I going to pay my LinkedIn premium, Catherine? No, literally. Like, let's, oh, LinkedIn is just another devilish concept that I don't want to talk about. Anyways. Um, but can you have a guess where the first, when the first fraternity was created? It's an important date, so. I'm not going to curse, but... Um... I don't know a lot of important dates, especially for America. Um, Literally one day, the one day you need. 1492. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the first frat was actually like a Native American frat where they just kind of... <laughs> <laughs> I don't no, know. Let's was... say one date. I know. I don't even know if it's correct. Is that is that the date? 1492, Yeah, but 14, no. Okay. 17, 1776, Independence of the USA. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. I remember it was and in it, the seventeen hundred, but like I I don't know the date. Oops. Yeah. Well, it's fine. It's seventeen seventy six. You know, um, Independence Declaration, Constitution, all those beautiful things that we know and, and love. And were they connected? Like the independence. Well. Oh, the independence of the frat? (laughs) (laughs) You know what? That's actually interesting. (laughs) I mean, I'm assuming though, like once you're independent and you, 
you know, build your first university. I guess so. I mean, maybe. I mean, yeah. it's like your teenage daughter being. This is not a phase. And putting exactly. a lock in her room. And exactly. Like, it was yeah, like I the first time. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It was called Phi Beta Kappa mm-hmm. in the College of William and Mary. Now, why would you think that the Freemasons um, are linked with this? Like, you know, it's just because like the concept of secret societies kind of, you know, persisted or is there more direct link, would you say? Um, I guess there could be like a recruitment aspect to it in the sense that young people would go to university, I would assume. And so this fraternity could be like the first step towards becoming a full Freemason? Well, let me tell you, the Phi Beta Kappa fraternity was uh-huh. founded by five people. Yeah. One of those, Thomas Smith, was originally part of the Williamsburg Lodge of the Freemasons in Virginia. Okay. And he fun- founded the Phi Beta Kappa fraternity in the College of William Mary. Uh-huh. Yes. So, um, in part, they owe the origins of Freemasonry a bit because, I guess, to, to kind of um, emulate this secret mm-hmm. society part in a newly formed country in a way that was um, kind of innovative and original. Also, because there was a lot of anti-Mason sentiment mm-hmm. um, in America, right. because also there was a creation of actually the first third party in American history was the anti-Mason party. Really? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know yeah. about that. So essentially yeah. they like created a secret society or a semi-secret society based on the Freemasons model, but because of this mm-hmm. anti-Freemason sentiment, they couldn't label it as the Freemason society in America. And they just gave it like they slapped on it some Greek letters. Essentially, yes. And linking it to an institution, uh, institution of higher education also gave it more legitimacy because it wasn't just mm-hmm. a separate group of people doing their secret business, like, you know, on the outskirts of society, like in the forest. It was part of a university. Yeah. So obviously, you know, higher education is an esteemed part of society. It links to knowledge, linked to, you know, advancing your per- career and especially in, I guess, a newly formed country, human capital is essential to kind of successfully yeah. form a model of society with people. And so obviously going against an institution of higher education in academia in a newly formed country would have greatly damaged, honestly, the potential of said country in America. So mm-hmm. Phi Beta Kappa. And to answer your question on um, the why is it Greek and why do they have Latin mottos a lot of times? It's generally just the same reason unis have Latin mottos in America, you know, Harvard, all the Ivy Leagues, and most, and even like in Italy, it's just to kind yeah. of um, going back to that, to that idea of prestige of the past and yeah. the, yeah, the cradle that. of Western civilization. That's Greece and Italy yeah. with the Latin Roman people. So it's not and- as... Yes. Yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, no, I, I understand that. Yeah. But um, the, the letters, are they random? Or do uh, they mean something? You know, I don't know. I do not know. I don't think they mean a whole lot of deal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Partially because there are so many fraternities and you see so many combinations of these letters. So I just genuinely just think they just picked random Greek letters, but I could be completely wrong. And I will fact check this after <laughs> and maybe insert it here, like, <laughs> to, you know, clear the air. But I don't think there are many meanings. Also, because Phi Beta Kappa, like all these things are literally three letters. That's not enough to form yeah. like a full word, you know. Uh-
Once again, Lorenz from the future, come to undo the wrongs done by the past me. Um, while there isn't any outward meaning to the um, letters used in fraternities, they might be indicative of uh, you know the initials of the motto of the fraternity, but many of these are secret and unknown, so there really is no way of knowing unless you get into the fraternity. So. Yeah, no, maybe it's like um, all the fraternities and sororities starting with phi are linked somehow. I don't know, like oh. a se- like a secret code. I really don't know. I- I've always like wondered though, because. Well, well, if you find Valentina dead in a ditch somewhere, it's because she cracked the code and the <laughs> CIA. The, the CIA is on her ass. Just like. <laughs> well, it was nice meeting you. Anyways, so um, with this first fraternity. It wasn't really until 1825 that they were engineered as a social concept, I guess, and that they started to be like replicated throughout the country. Mm-hmm. And, um, and they especially kind of gained traction in between the 1870 and 1920, which coincided with in a huge boom in higher education enrollment. Now, yeah. yes. Why would you think that it's important for fraternities to kind of... Um, be created or be promoted especially in when they coincide with a great increase in enrollment of higher education okay so one thing that comes to mind that i'm pretty sure is that um if you're part of a fraternity you get um awarded like um accommodation within the fraternity i guess not Mm -hmm. always but i think most fraternities you can there choose you and often it's not obligatory to live with the fraternity yeah but you can if you get gain admission in a fraternity you can live you get live. The, also the rights to live in the house fraternity yeah house. so i think it might be connected to that so the cost of accommodation um and organizing into accommodation as a newly enrolled student um would be easier if there already exists a structure in which to like insert students that you know can accommodate them and can provide you know living uh, living facilities but also as i said before just a social structure as well so i think perhaps it's linked to that you're right that it's easier for the student but it's also easier a lot easier for the university yeah definitely. to manage this incoming wave of students mm-hmm. and that's exactly why universities were um, so keen on having fraternities despite their other problematic more problematic aspects which we will get into later mm-hmm. but that's it's basically because it's distributed discipline what does that mean that there's a shift of responsibilities essentially from the higher education mm-hmm. body to the fraternities so it's less work for the administration centralized administration of the university to keep track of their unruly new students first of mm-hmm. all um, and it kind of uh, it's also very economically beneficial the higher education um, to have these fraternities because it's less upkeep on their part, but also because once um, once fraternity members graduate from university, um, there's a lot of influx of alumni donation to the fraternities. Mm, there we go. Donation. Exactly. So exactly donation money, you know, that moolah. So essentially these fraternities were a way to leverage this um, 
prestige of university because more students you have the more i guess um clout you also gain but it's yeah. also a way to maintain order and to just um have these microcosms of i guess society inside your own um wider institution because for example if there was a problem with the fraternity for the fraternities just the administration of the university could just tell the head of the frat listen deal with it deal with and it. the head of the frat talks to the lower section of the fraternity, deal with it you know it's just it's this kind of um, relaying of responsibilities, less problems you have to face, the better it is for you. Right. Yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah. You're completely, under, you're completely right. Mm-hmm. It makes so much sense. You know, um, if you already have established structures in which to send your incoming students, and if you are not equipped for the number of incoming students um, using the systems that are already in place is easier and cheaper. So that makes mm-hmm. complete sense. Exactly. It reminds me a lot of, in, well, I recently, in my, one of my economics modules, it's kind of a similar thing in the sense that, concept, in the sense that when the UK government chose to um, pr- privatize some council houses, it was because it was more cheap for them to privatize the houses. Yeah. Because so they didn't have to keep with the upkeep of public housing, you know? So it just left to the landlords to deal with it, shifting responsibilities away from the government to the people, I guess. Yeah. Even though the consequences are obviously very negative for various reasons it was kind of the same concept with fraternities this um this concept and it's interesting how it kind of propagates the same mechanism is um kind of repeated in just different sections of society where it's easier to not assume responsibility mm-hmm. and just shifted general i'm going to talk about like very very general neoliberal philosophy um is centered around the idea of individualization and responsabilization of the individual. So how can I, as a government, as a business, as an institution, how can I shift the responsibilities that have historically fallen on my back on the individual? Because that benefits Mm -hmm. me in a number of different ways. And you're absolutely right. This is another... Um, I think maybe perhaps more nuanced because um, I don't know. Of if... course, no, of course. It's not just yeah, directly, yeah, yeah. but no, I guess it's kind of the same culture we all, all. Yeah, because, to. yeah, 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 yeah. Because instead of being responsible um, to the universities, um, you're, you're responsible to your, you know, upperclassman who is the head of this mm-hmm. mythical fraternity. Um, mm-hmm. And they bear the brunt of, of organizing you, essentially. So it's, exactly. it's very, it's very interesting. Um, I'd, be, I'd be interested in understanding if like frat houses are like privately owned and, owned and rented or if they're still part of the mm-hmm. like university accommodation, but they're reserved for frat members. I think that would be interesting. It would be, it would be. An, I, th- I believe though um, that they're, they're not completely independent because otherwise I would just yeah. make them to be affiliated with the university in some capacity. They would have to have some. Yeah, I that think, makes sense. But I'm not sure. That's, it could also depend very much from university to university, university, but I do think there has to be some, I guess, minor, however minor link to the home institution. And, um, but yeah, and you know, what country could kind of, launch this model of yeah if not the u.s if not the u.s exactly perfectly kind of (laughs) so it kind of exactly so it kind of perfectly falls in line with this now 
I guess with this historical part of it, um, you know, done, done, done exactly, uh, done and dusted. Do you have any questions? Any is everything clear so far? Yeah, no, it's it's very clear. It's 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 very it's so interesting. Um, yeah. And now comes the more interesting part, and um, this comes. This part is entirely based on the reflections of Gia Tolentino in her book *Trick Mirror*. And I'm saying it now because I just want to say this book. Um, it basically, um, she's a journalist and a writer, mm-hmm. and in this book, it's called *Trick Mirror: Reflections on Self-Illusions*. And there's seven different essays. I believe there are seven. There's seven different essays in which she analyzes a certain part of society which. Um, affected her self-delusion as a woman in society and it's so interesting she writes so well and I recommend it to you I recommend it to anyone listening um, she's an amazing writer so Trick Mirror by Jet Lentino and one of these chapters it's called um, it is called We Come From Old Virginia and it basically recounts um, the kind of I guess rape culture in general um, mm-hmm. especially from her university the University of Virginia and um, well the chapter is about like um, an article that recounts um, uh, a rape, a brutal. Oh, we also have to do the trigger warnings about like these things. We can we can do that at the beginning. Okay, so, so the chapter basically recounts um, how an article that detailed a rape on university campus turned out to be fake, but it's not about that per se. It's about just how, despite it being fake, it was like that fake allegation was still caused by. I guess the um, how rape is perceived in our society and how really normalized, um, I guess it is, and it perpetuates. It, it, it's a great, great essay, and it's as. Is this about the lacrosse team? No. Okay, because there's a very famous, very famous no. insta- like piece of news. Um, mm-hmm. I don't remember exactly when, but it does detail um, the allegations made by to i believe um dancers strippers that were called to a a polo team um no uh, uh, shit. lacrosse polo team frat house i don't really remember um and essentially it kind of came out that these uh, allegations of rape seem to be um, fake in the sense that they are very coherent. They were never coherent and they don't mm-hmm. fit in with the actual timing of, of the things that mm-hmm. happened within the house. Um, and it was a very, very big case. So I was just wondering mm-hmm. if it's that. But. Yeah. Well, the chapter, I'll, I'll do a little like summary on the chapter just to contextualize it. Um, it's about this fake rape allegation, but the way it was blown out of proportion was because um, it wasn't a complete lie on the on the um, victim's part it was just her fake um kind of her false allegation was very much influenced by the way in which um you know uh, rape kind of seeps into the popular culture and um also the kind of the 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 kind of almost obsessive need for journalists to exceptionalize rape as something sensational to make it as something that's that that's need to be heard that's worth mm-hmm. writing about and she says something so like like it's poignant that's i began to think that there is no room for writing about sexual assault that relies on any sense of anomaly the truth about rape is that it's not exceptional it's not anomalous and there is no way to make that into a satisfying story so yeah that's so that's very interesting and anyways 
that's but you have to read the chapter to truly capture the essence of it because I I'm not doing it justice. But do read Trick Mirror by Joe Tolentino. It is an amazing book. Anyways, so in um she goes in the chapter kind of she paints a general picture first of just the many many instances of um rape and sexual assault allegations just around um the u.s linked to fraternities for example in university of west virginia in charlottesville um in 1984 um Lee Securo, um a student at the university unfortunately got raped in a fraternity she spoke out and there was this institutional dismissal where she was kind of cast aside mm -hmm. not taken seriously and you know there weren't really any real repercussions for the perpetrators and no real um i guess justice done for the victim mm -hmm. again i want to ask you a question sure go ahead so um it is obvious that like fraternities or the existence of fraternities in this case um, isn't a necessary prerequisite for rape because on-campus rape happens even when fraternity culture isn't very big or where they don't exist at all. Mm -hmm. Say in England, campus mm -hmm. rape like happened, has happened, will probably continue to happen, unfortunately, but we do not have this culture. So I want to ask you, what role do fraternities in particular, do you think, um, what role do they have in per the perpetuation of the patriarchy and this violent, um, this violent manifestation of the mm -hmm. pa patriarchy into mm -hmm. rape. Do you think they have like a, a special yeah. role? They absolutely do. And I will get into that in two seconds yeah. um, before just kind of to kind of um, introduce, I guess, the, the situation with that links violence against women to fraternities. And, you know, in American culture, there were several high profile news stories about college assault and harassment. In 2010, Yale suspended the fraternity Delta Kappa Epsilon for five years after the pledges chanted, no means yes, and yes means anal, in front of the school's women's center, mm -hmm. which is disgusting. And the fact that you only got five years of suspension is whatever. Anyways, in 2014, Emma Solkowitz, this was actually very, very, um, famous news story. If you do remember, she was a student who got raped and carried a mattress around Columbia campus um, to kind of raise awareness of her case. And in 2015, two Vanderbilt football players were found guilty of raping an unconscious woman. And these are just a few of the many, many instances. And yeah. so to get back to your question, why is this male dominance over women and violence is kind of manifested so, so um egregiously i guess in fraternities well in the university of virginia for example um the um, kind of fraternities and conversation about fraternities start to sharpen around the role that they played in violence because mm -hmm. you know as kind of colleges became more integrated and the student population became more and more diverse this idea that there was this kind of kind of black and white male dominance over women was increasingly challenged by women becoming more you know, liberal and these kind of feminist waves mm -hmm. and also by gay men joining, like being able to you know, freely live their lives as gay men on campuses. And they, these two demographics both challenge the idea that um, men- Yeah, God forbid they actually have rights. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And it kind of, 
it destroyed this hegemony between men and women where men were just stronger and women were more subdued, submissive, quote unquote, by society, obviously, to remember. Yeah. It's not that women never stood up for themselves, is that when they did, they weren't um, seconded by the institutions, the places built around them that were meant to protect them, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah. And historically, uh, yeah, and historically, once you have a push, a push on the, um, from someone marginalized in society, you will have an equal and opposite pushback from exactly. the oppressors in society. So what you are going to tell me will not surprise me. <laughs> exactly. But in the 90s, this kind of pushback from the ruling elite, quote unquote, to say, mm-hmm. became more and more difficult to kind of um, to be successfully executed because there were so many women and gay men and just even good men that... Um, started this conversation around the role that fraternities played in the culture of violence against women, gay men, and even their own members. If you talk about the hazing ritual and the hazing process, which is so consistently humiliating um, against own fraternity members. And Mm -hmm. so why did this conversation kind of arise? And what, what is the, I guess, theoretical philosophical um, argument behind it? Well, in the book, the company he keeps by Nicholas Surrett, which is, a detailed documentation of white fraternities, white fraternities specifically in mm-hmm. America. And it's important because 73% of fraternity population in America is white. Oh, that's a very <laughs> surprising statistic to me. As in yeah. like not surprising um, in the least, actually, uh, not surprising yeah. in the least, but having never thought about that and being confronted with the reality of that is, yeah. is, is, is quite, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Well, you have to remember that exactly makes you think because well obviously these institutions um well are kind of you know legacies of the past and you know in the beginning from the freemasons etc these institutions were made to uphold the more privileged sectors it starts an honor society only for men you know it's even Mm -hmm. interesting that we're repeating fraternities and not specifying fraternities slash sororities because sororities were not a thing until a lot later in life (laughs) in history so you know Anyways, in the company he keeps, Nicholas Surrett states that fraternities attract men who value other men more than women. The intimacy that develops within fraternal circles between men who care for each other necessitates a vigorous performance of heterosexuality in order to combat the appearance of homosexuality. To, I guess, to, um, to reclaim this sense of male identity and strength that can be lost in the appearance of excessive care for someone of the same sex does that make Mm -hmm. sense yeah what are your thoughts on this kind of first i guess breakdown of it i think it makes a lot of sense um Mm -hmm. i think that men have historically struggled to find emotional um support Mm -hmm. in other men um and giving them a quote-unquote safe space into which um actually maybe even manifest their their vulnerabilities but in a very gendered way so perhaps you know punching a a a a hole in a wall when you're mm-hmm. angry angry um and particularly you know feel particularly vulnerable that's still mm-hmm. that's still being in a heightened emotional space but um, yeah but uh, it's acceptable because it's done in, but it's, it's gendered uh, yeah yeah you're absolutely right yeah. um so i think um building gendered spaces such as fraternities mm-hmm. in which you can feel 
more accepted when you manifest these vulnerabilities and this, these emotional, um, hi heightened emotional uh, moods yeah. can mm -hmm. be necessary for some people if you're not used to um, working on, you, on your emotional responses and, um, and making them acceptable to, to society at large and not only to, you know, your body max and mm -hmm. hunter. Absolutely. You're right. So they seek to kind of prove their male strength, male ethos, um, improve their essentially also their heterosexuality because it's also a sexuality thing that is linked to gender, mm -hmm. you know, some, if you're not heterosexual, then you're not considered uh, the, the fullest man you can be, right? So through these excessive behaviors, through this aggressive homophobia and the denigration of women, through using homoerotic hazing rituals to humiliate one another, and through framing sex with women as something engaged in from one's brothers for communal consumption by them, yeah. also strengthens this herd mentality. There's also mm -hmm. strength in numbers, you know? You might be a strong man, but what's stronger than one strong man? Two strong men, and three yeah. strong men, four strong So it's just this, also this sense of invincibility that derives from being such a pack of yeah. aggressive, virulent people trapped in a house. Yeah, no, of course, of course it does. Of course it does. And, you know, even you're, you're talking, you were talking about hazing and mm -hmm. um, I'm going to ask you to, to clarify exactly what hazing is for people that might not know. Mm -hmm. But even, you know, the practice of hazing is supposed to be the most vilifying thing on purpose, mm -hmm. because once you're at your lowest and at your most vulnerable and at your you know dirtiest Absolutely. you know even physically because a lot of things are just disgusting yeah um you will still be accepted by the people doing this to you and mm -hmm. so it becomes and it forms these very very strong emotional bonds um of loyalty and, and camaraderie fear. and through fear yeah through fear but i also think through through you know your emotional uh, codependence to them because mm -hmm. you know suddenly you have shown the most ugliest and undesirable yeah. part of yourself to these people and they because you have done that have accepted you into this safe as you said before pack I can think of nothing more satisfying for a man whose emotional needs have been stunted from childbirth, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, well, not from childbirth, but from birth. Okay. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, nothing more satisfying than that. Like the allure of belonging. Absolutely. I understand is, is, yeah. is very powerful. And it's also, I guess, a necessity to then remain in that closed of um, course, part, because, because what other friends do you have? Exactly. And also, if you do them wrong, they can use that state of utter fragility and humiliation as leverage against you. Yeah, you know? absolutely. So it's also this, it's terrible. It's, it, it is emotional manipulation and it's, anyways, mm -hmm. hazing, sorry, just to clarify. Yeah, go for it, go for it. Essentially in a, a process in which you are initiated into one of these fraternities. So, um, for example, in the UK, in the UK context, it's very funny. There's this rumor that goes around. Uh, you obviously know the David Cameron rumor about him having, oh, yeah. Sex, about yeah, yeah, him yeah. having, having intercourse, intercourse with a pig, which yeah. obviously it's, we can't 
verify it we can't say it's true yeah. or false but that was kind of a rumor going on that was based on initiation process of a college in oxford so mm-hmm. these hazing process are can be anything from you you know yeah. being naked running around campus or you just be really just entails humiliation yeah some sort of physical For, yeah psychological from, humiliation. from not personal experiences because i don't i don't have the time to go through hazing um <laughs> yeah. but from a friend telling me what happened when what happened when he did his initiation um i think he had to eat cat food at one point and then <sighs> and then um a lot of people have to drink beer out of their shoes push-ups they'll have you do push-ups well like other people yeah. um it can be harmless it can, it can be it can be like maybe just some sort of excessive drinking whatever like yeah do, but no. a lot of a lot of hazing a lot of initiations in the uk are done in like fancy clothes yeah so yeah, like you'll funny. be half naked or you'll like be wearing this like a mini mini skirt with like you, you uh yeah. like a, a two small top on as well and a wig yeah. perhaps so you're right it's supposed to be it's supposed to be mild at least mildly embarrassed yeah it's more. supposed to be like a little like a little gag you do just you know yeah. it's not supposed to be just emotional labor emotional humiliation yeah. just so you're correct be- it does go from you know the more benign yeah less manipulative less um, scarring experiences yeah. to the very very traumatic absolutely absolutely and well this kind of links into what i said before about past legacies because white fraternities because also it's important to uh, emphasize that people of color were not allowed to join these fraternities up until very recently in history as we all know we i don't have to explain why and so these white fraternities have historically existed for the purpose of solidifying this elite male power and entitlement. So from the 19th century, when the wealthy men separated themselves from their power cl- poor classmates through the fraternity system, um, up until the 20th century, where men used frat houses to preserve an exclusively male space and an increasingly mixed gender world. Because again, many colleges, women could not be enrolled until a lot later. So, you yeah. know, kind of this this little um bubble of this little time capsule you one could say yeah you know yeah because uh once beth is allowed to enroll into classes at your college then how are you going to go about your life knowing that it's um it's not like it was before and uh, you can't define yourself by um living in a solely Mm -hmm. male dominated space anymore exactly because your power is exactly your power is under threat yeah. So you go and you, you, you build another one, essentially. I guess. Exactly. And in the book, she says something really interesting, which is basically fraternities allowed high class status and low class behavior to coexist in a single individual, in a single space. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, again, so this whole terrible kind of part of fraternities, why do universities overlook this? Why do universities always tend to um, be suspicious against not suspicious but be um, tend to close an eye on a lot of the sexual violence and you know in, not even like just sexual violence just destructive behavior that goes on in universities property destruction excessive drinking um, you know um, disruption of just like the environment through partying and just no, all these things because again they're very um, they're very significant. They are a source of institutional capital. Again, as I said before, through alumni money flowing to the universities after graduation, 
and also this kind of concept of the thrill of group immunity. Mm. And on the, in the book, she says, being able to, on the wholesome end, throw a sink out the window without being written up for property destruction. And on the unwholesome end, frat provides social cover to engage in extraordinary interpersonal violence, the hazing process, to purchase and consume as much alcohol and as many drugs as one wants to, because again, it's also linked to American culture, where once you're 21, so away from home and in the college environment, you have kind of this free pass to just experiment and unleash all hell regarding alcohol and all these things yeah i think that's and, a com- um, i think that's a common experience for a lot of kids yeah. going off to to uni i think um, but if you know it's also egged on if you're in an environment where there's exclusively you know oh yeah 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 yeah, yeah. When cer- um, where certain behaviors are expected and even rewarded yeah exactly and also it really is important to understand that fraternities they're not this just a sole source of evil you know fraternities are not an yeah. oven in which rapists are baked and sent out to the world you know it mm-hmm. doesn't really create rapists it doesn't form rapists or violent people but it does obscure them to an extent mm-hmm. and it does yeah. help them blend a lot more into the fabric of society than if it was just you know overlooked by the university because again there is this shift of responsibility and where there's a shift of responsibility there is also an overlooking of things that happen so yeah yeah and um as we said before the the emotional bonds that that are created in a fraternity setting definitely give you a lot of loyalty toward your you know fellow um frat mates i don't know how to call them frat mates yeah frat mates yeah frat mates i think right frat mates wait no i think probably not but we're conflating flat mates I think it's just frat members. My my maybe my frat brothers probably. I don't know. I we're coining a new term, frat mates. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I would imagine that even if you somehow uh, became aware that your buddy Michael was mm, being inappropriate towards a woman, uh, a homosexual person, a person mm-hmm. of color. Um, I would expect that your bonds of loyalty would get in the way of you mm-hmm. reporting such cases or confronting your friend about them because, you know, it, it, in, certain, in certain fraternities, I'm sure there's this idea of, you know, frat over everything, you know, your frat yeah. mates before everything. Um, so, you know, to a certain degree, I guess, certain environments like fraternities uh, uh, condone certain behaviors and, and i think that's why they're problematic um, it's it's that they encourage the condoning of certain uh, 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 of certain behaviors that are damaging of people be outside of the fraternity you know, as long as the fraternity is intact and as long as you're not attacking the fraternity from the inside, you can do whatever you want to the people outside of it. Yeah, and also there is a spillover effect, right? That once you're not in the fraternity anymore, when you graduate, that same behavior is going to stick to you and you apply them to society when then it creates, you know, the greater society people live, where it creates even, I guess, greater problems. Because once it's not in a college setting and once you're a fully formed adult, who still has those fraternity behaviors ingrained in you, you know, it's kind of just a recipe for 
continuing your bad habits. And just to mm -hmm. kind of, um, I guess, finish off all this data with some fraternity statistics. So how many, so in North America, so I guess US primarily, but also Canada, mm -hmm. how many students do you think are in frats? Like a number or percentage? A number, and I'll tell you both. Or percentage, whatever you prefer. Um, 8%. Okay, you're not too far off. Um, approximately 10% oh, of, okay. yeah, of student population are in frats, which is a significant number if you think about yeah. it. And um, it's double, big, double digits. It's, yeah, it's big, but it's also like small compared to how much like how yeah. much they're featured on even like pop culture mu movies. Yeah, but the representation is completely inflated in fields of high esteem, privilege and importance. Yeah. For example, 63% of president cabinets in the US have been comprised of fraternity members. So out of all the members of the cabinets throughout US history, 63% of those members have been in frats. Oh. Yeah. Wow. It's kind wow. of, I guess you can compare it to kind of how in the UK, all the prime ministers have been to either Oxford Eton. or Cambridge. Yeah. yeah or Eton. Or Eton, um, yeah. And it's interesting to see how this is all, um, um, this is also echoed and, you know, and the yeah. UK and the US have shared history in many ways. So at the end of the mm. day, you know, anyways, you know, British colonizers, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah. So... I guess we can wrap it up. Do you have any final reflections? Did I illuminate you on certain topics? Did you enjoy this episode? And why ultimately do you think that, maybe just to introduce a little comparative aspect to it, why do you think fraternities are more institutionalized in the US as opposed to Europe maybe? That's, um, this has been a very, very fun episode to do. I enjoyed it immensely. So thank you for that. Um, I think what, we definitely need to go find go find out oh my goodness um what we'll have to talk about maybe more in the future is sororities and mm -hmm. how they differ from fraternities mm -hmm. um that would be an interesting episode to do definitely maybe in the in the future when we mm -hmm. decide to do it okay. when some when we sell the rights to our show exactly <laughs> um but yeah definitely an interesting topic um and then differences from america and europe that's a good question i know I it's think... a big question that can be answered in two sentences but like just no, maybe of course. Vaguely... Mm -hmm. i think what might be the case is that a lot of people in europe tend to go to universities relatively close to home mm -hmm. and so perhaps they don't have the same need uh, to completely redo and regrow their um, support systems. So, for example, if you've grown up in a city and you end up going to one of the universities in or in the vicinity of your city, you kind of retain a lot of your friends. Maybe some friends go to the same university as you or you move just a couple hours away from home. Um, and so perhaps you don't need or you don't feel this need for extreme belonging um, as much, where I guess this isn't actually based on any type of fact, but I feel like it's- No, but I would agree with you. 
I think Especially it's more. Italy. Yeah, I think it's 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 more normalized. It's it's more mm -hmm. uh, common um, that if you can afford a private university in the U.S., mm -hmm. you might move to a completely different state to pursue yeah. it. Obviously, think, you know, um, dependent yeah. on your financial. Uh, uh, no, of course possibilities uh, because if you go to community college i assume you would go to one to one close to home but yeah. if you have the finances to pursue a private further education uh, mm -hmm. perhaps you need to literally move to the opposite coast yeah so that emotional need is more prevalent that's my hypothesis yeah no, and I would agree with you, but I also think in a context of maybe more Mediterranean countries, Southern European culture, I think the concept of family is so deeply ingrained in the collective psyche that no type of institution could ever act as a surrogate for like a, a second mm. family or like, a, you know, I yeah. don't think it would ever hold the influence that it has in America just because this idea of independence and family, like I think it's very much very yeah, very different yeah, yeah and diverging. just pointed out something really interesting that they are called fraternities that i think comes mm -hmm. from latin word yeah, brothers. or brother and sororities comes from sister so mm -hmm. yeah that does have a nod nudge to family life which is family connections uh, and mm -hmm. the loyalty uh, that you 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 owe or you think you owe to your family which is very very interesting exactly. so yeah so, well, yeah. thank you for this episode, Lalo. That was really interesting and really fun to talk about. Um, thank you. It was, yeah, I, I, it was a pleasure, honestly, for me researching it. And it was great to kind of reread again this book, which I so dearly love. And I will plug it in again. Trick Mirror Gia Tolentino. That's G-I-A-T-O-L-E-N-T-I-N-O. -E -E she writes in the New Yorker. Read her columns. Read this book. It's... Oh, she writes so well. And if I love that as a guy, this primarily talks about the place of women, I guess, in society also. So women will love it even more. And um, Yeah, so Gia, if you're listening. Gia, you. I freaking love you, dude. You're so great. You're my favorite. And um, <gasps> But yeah, thank you all for listening and um, for reaching the end of this episode. Yeah, you and, made it through. Congrats if you yeah, did. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, now the table, you know, the playing table has evened out. It's your turn next. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can't uh, wait to know. see what I, uh, what I dive into. You cook up. Yeah. Will we stay in the college realm or stray away? No, I think it's time to leave the nest. Yeah. Venture yeah, yeah. into the world. Exactly. Perfecto. Well, again, <laughs> okay. thank you. Thank you. And uh, thank you for listeners as well. It's a thank you circle. And see you next time. Bye. Bye.